you really do know so much about the way the world works. Like, you know that if you don't want to get sick, you should probably do a good job washing your hands. And you also know why, because you know that invisible germs get washed away. That's a no-brainer. But what if you didn't know about germs? In a pre-science world, you could just as easily think that somebody put a curse on you. And that, too, could seem like a no-brainer. And in a world where magic has clout, it stands to reason you would behave differently. For instance, you could throw your neighbor under the bus by accusing them of using evil magic, witchcraft. Uh, witch hunters didn't need to even present a wronged party to prosecute somebody for witchcraft. Uh, witches then denounced other witches. Chain reactions grew as people hung others out to dry. Nobody wanted to be burned for protecting somebody else. This is a bleak and weird world, and we're going in. Tonight, Humboldt State University professor Ben Marshke takes you back to the European witch craze, which resulted in perhaps 100,000 witch trials over hundreds of years. It was big, and almost everyone went along with it. Witchcraft was real in the 16th, 17th, and even into the 18th centuries. Uh, people wrote and read books about it. Universities offered courses and did research projects on it. And people acted on their beliefs, and they acted on what they knew. And what they knew was that witchcraft was real. Tonight on My Favorite Lecture, Ben Marshke delivers Witches, Sex and Science in the 16th Century. And it's as much about demonology as it is epistemology. My name is Mike Dronkers, and My Favorite Lecture is a new show from KHSU, where the idea is that educators from Humboldt State University give free public lectures about some of the most interesting things they know about, and then they take audience questions after. And as you listen, you can see some pictures of what he's talking about right now at khsu.org. A word of caution, Marshke describes a grim period in history which sensitive ears may find indelicate, if not outright chilling. And as this was recorded live at the Plaza View Room, it was rainy and windy outside. The first big storm of the season was moving in. And we took a moment to ask Ben Marshke what we were in for. We're going to talk about science um, and, and that there's basically no science in the 16th century. And this is why they have things like witchcraft. Part of this is we're going to talk about sex because a lot of witchcraft is about, is about sex. Is it appropriate to talk about the history of emotions? You've really kicked up the questions a notch now. This is, <laughs> um, I think it is. And I, I, I mean, there is a history of emotions. Different people in different places and different cultures and different time periods understand how emotions are and where they come from and what, what they do differently. We could talk about melancholy. Um, a way that a lot of historians talk about this period is crisis. But, I mean, there are different moods in different periods. It's hard to kind of generalize about an entire population. But to some extent, you can. I mean, you can look at what are the kind of trends in uh, cultural production. You know, what kind of stories are people reading and writing? And uh, what kind of plays are they performing? What kind of music are they listening to? And then you really do get a sense of, you know, what the period would have felt like, at least for most of the people most of the time. Well, I wish you luck tonight and break a leg. Good luck. Okay, thank you, Mike. Welcome to my favorite lecture, Remarkable Talks from HSU Educators. Do they do this? Do your students do this for you? Every day. Every, Every day. day, that's yeah. right. That's right. And it is literally a dark and stormy night, so let's give it up for the weather. 
Tonight's lecturer is Ben Marschke, and he is a history professor at Humboldt State University. He wrote many, many things, and you can Google his name. You'll come up with a lot of German words that have almost no vowels. Without further ado, Dr. Ben Marschke. Hi, uh, great. It's, it's nice to be here, and I'm even more flattered that uh, there's this kind of crowd here tonight. I hope this is as good as you all seem to think it's going to be. <laughs> so, I usually deliver this lecture to a 100-level survey on Western civilization. Uh, in another course, I, I do a lot more with witchcraft uh, in an upper division course, on, specifically on early modern Europe. Uh, that class is called Musketeers, Witches, and Kings. And as you can imagine, we, uh, we read a bunch of the things I'm going to talk about tonight, uh, the primary sources, uh, the handbooks on how to find witches, what they do, how to hunt them down, uh, and then burn them alive. Um, so... Uh, now, the way that we should understand witchcraft, uh, really, is, and this is one of the things, one of the points I'm going to talk about tonight, write this down, is we should see witchcraft in the context of the history of ideas and the history of science. Now, the history of ideas and the history of science normally trace changes in scholarly ideas over time. Uh, so, for example, uh, in a course like mine, we spend a lot of time on the Renaissance, on the scientific revolution, uh, on the Enlightenment. Uh, this is the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries for all of you. Uh, those are the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. Uh, now, the trick is, though, these branches of history, uh, the history of ideas, the history of science, uh, they tend to focus on what worked. Uh, they tend to go back and trace the origins of ideas that turned out to actually be correct. Uh, historians of ideas and science aren't as much interested in the ideas that turned out to be wrong. Uh, so, uh, for example, in terms of astronomy, uh, the history of science spends a lot of time looking at people like Copernicus and Galileo and Newton, uh, and they are important figures because they ultimately turned out to be correct. Uh, looking at medical science, uh, they spend time with people like Vesalius, Paracelsus, Harvey, uh, for the same reason, because they basically turned out to, to be correct about what they were describing. Now, let me say, though, this is actually bad history. Uh, bad in the sense of a history not well done, because it tends to be anachronistic. Uh, it lets, we should question how historians work and how they think and their methods and their analyses. And the point is that if we only focus on the scientists, the researchers, uh, the people who had ideas that turned out to be correct, uh, then we're really kind of taking things out of context and not understanding what people really thought. Now, there's another way to look at this, and that is we could look at what people really understood then. Uh, so, for example, to understand the history of science, we should understand the ideas that turned out to be wrong. Uh, we should look at the researchers who spent their entire careers running down dead ends. Uh, yeah, as an academic, this is very appealing to me. Um, <laughs> so we could see this uh, in any number of fields. Uh, for example, in astronomy, rather than thinking of Copernicus, uh, we could look at the people who were utterly convinced that the Earth was the center of the universe and knew uh, that the Earth did not move, uh, that the Earth was... Uh, surrounded by stars that were suspended in crystal, uh, stars were crystals suspended in ether, 
the people who thought that uh, Copernicus's ideas were crazy, uh, the people who persecuted Galileo as a heretic and ultimately silenced him in Italy. In terms of early modern medicine, uh, we could look at the people who were talking about uh, a balance of humors in the body, uh, working on homeopathy, uh, things that modern medicine basically discounts as uh, superstition and pseudoscience. Uh, these basically turned out to be dead ends uh, or ineffectual or actually harmful, uh, but uh, nonetheless, this was what people were actually doing at the time. So uh, we could also talk about something like alchemy, uh, which basically every smart, well-educated person was involved with in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. Um, we'll come back to trying to turn lead into gold briefly. Uh, so, Now, there's still a, another way uh, of looking at this, and that would be to look at what normal people understood. Uh, this is what we call the history of popular belief or popular culture. Uh, there are all kinds of unscientific beliefs uh, that are held by many people uh, even today, right? Uh, you need only read the newspaper uh, to realize that something like creationism is very much a part of our culture uh, as much as evolution. Now, uh, hold on and, and bear with me while we delve into theory a, a little bit. Um, I want to differentiate between reality and truth at this point. And I want to say, this will make some of my colleagues crazy, uh, but I want to say that historians aren't really much concerned with the truth. We don't really care about the truth. What we really care about is reality. And you're asking, what is the difference? Uh, if we pick another modern-day example, I think I can make this clear. A, a question of truth, for example, would be whether or not the idea of climate change is true or not. Uh, now, as a historian, I, that's not my department. I'm not concerned with that. Uh, there are people from CNRS who are here who can argue those, uh, those things. Uh, it's up to other people to argue whether or not it's true. Uh, as a historian, though, climate change is real because people believe in it and they act on it. Uh, people write books about it, people buy and read books about it, people carry out studies, they attend conferences, they offer courses at the university about it. Uh, climate change is real because people act and demand action about climate change. Uh, this makes it real even if it's not actually true, depending on your theory or what department you belong to. Uh, now, of course, this also means that skepticism about climate change is also real. Uh, it's real that people deny climate change is happening and resist associated policies. Uh, we could also think of some less current examples, right? Uh, I think most of us would accept that it's not true uh, that the Earth is the center of the universe, but that idea was very real in the 16th century. Uh, in much the same way in the 16th, 17th, into the 18th century, Alchemy was very real, even if all of us, I think, know that the idea that you could change lead into gold is completely untrue. I, I'm hoping this makes sense. Uh, now, at the time, though, these things were very real to the people who believed them. And in fact, many of the best educated people in Europe were working on alchemical projects. Uh, these were not kooks working out of their garages uh, trying to come up with the 150 mile per gallon carburetor. 
Uh, these were university faculty, members of royal academies, the very best minds of the day. Now, in the same way, witchcraft was real in the 16th, 17th, and even into the 18th centuries. Uh, people wrote and read books about it. Universities offered courses and did research projects on it. And people acted on their beliefs, and they acted on what they knew. And what they knew was that witchcraft was real. Everybody's with me so far? Good, good. Okay. Let me add one more complication to this before all of your buzzes wear off. Uh, this, uh, the, the categories, you're going to edit that out, right, Mike? Um, no. Uh, so, let me add one more complication to this. Uh, the categories that we understand, uh, the paradigms in which we think, uh, the big word for this would be epistemologies, uh, the ways that we know the things that we know. Uh, I think most of us nowadays, uh, if I probably all of us, uh, differentiate between science and technology and medicine on the one hand uh, versus something like religion uh, as being something distinct uh, versus something like magic or superstition or sorcery, which would be something different again. Uh, most of us would understand these three things to be relatively discrete, separate. Uh, in fact, we could probably easily categorize most things as one or the other, and we tend to not let things cross over from one thing to the next. Uh, so, for example, uh, when I drink NyQuil, that's medicine. That's science. There's a kind of technology behind this. Uh, a blessing from my priest uh, would be something like religion, uh, and my lucky rabbit's foot would be superstition. Right Now, before the mid-17th century, nobody would have thought this way. These would have all been parts of the same paradigm, the same way of knowing, the same way of thinking. And quite literally, what we now call science would have been understood to be magic. And this is something else that we should all understand, is that people in the 16th century lived in a supernatural world. Um, historians actually talk about a later uh, disenchantment of the world, uh, that the world that had literally been magical becomes uh, basically devoid of magic later on. Uh, this only begins uh, in the 17th century with the scientific revolution. Uh, not coincidentally, it's also at that point that people started to differentiate between things like science and religion and magic, to think of them as different paradigms, different ways of knowing, I guess we could say different epistemologies. So, for us to better understand uh, this, the mindset, the mentality of, of Europeans in the 16th and 17th century, for us, science functions as a kind of secular religion. Uh, we live in a remarkably secular world, at least most of us in 21st century America do. Uh, religion, though, did not go away. Religion still defines us and serves as a kind of pattern for the way that we believe in things. Uh, to put it simply, rather than being religiously fundamentalists, uh, we're now scientific fundamentalists. I, I, I can explain this. Even if we are not scientists, and I'm guessing that most of us are not, uh, most of you are here for the witches and not the science in the title. Uh, that's not right either. You're here for the sex, I know. Um, but even if we're not scientists ourselves, we can't help but see things scientifically. 
This is so much the paradigm for us, the way that we think, the box in which we are stuck, and that we find it almost impossible usually to think outside the scientific box. For example, I'm sure that all of us believe in germs and satellites and psychoses, electricity, etc. We look to science to answer all of these questions. Now, never mind that most of us don't even begin to really understand all of this science. It doesn't matter that we don't actually understand it because we don't need to understand it to use it or to believe in it, for that matter. Pick another kind of obvious example. I have no idea how meteorologists come up with their forecasts, uh, but I saw the weather report and I brought an umbrella tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing a bunch of you did too. So we self-medicate with over-the-counter drugs or not over-the-counter drugs. Uh, But I I don't think any of us could actually explain the chemical effects of something like ibuprofen. Even if we don't understand how these things work, we believe that somebody somewhere does. Uh, There's a scientist, a technician, an IT expert, a mechanic, a doctor. Uh, These are our priests nowadays. Uh, They explain to us why things happen. Or, in the off-frequent case that nobody seems to explain it, we believe that science will explain it at some point in the indefinite future. For those of you who were here for Professor Hoyle's talk last month, Uh, he confessed to all of us that physicists actually don't have any clue about 95% of the stuff in the universe, which for as a non-physicist I found fairly unsettling, uh, but only briefly. Uh, And I think uh, most of us still believe that physicists actually know what they're doing, even when they're telling us that they don't. So we should realize that science regularly fails us And yet we still have faith in it. Just about everything ever produced by Microsoft turns out to have failed us. And and yet, nonetheless, this doesn't even begin to shake our belief in science. So the point is, we use science to explain basically everything. So in the same way, people in early modern Europe would not have gotten past religion, and magic. This dominated their everyday lives, just like science dominates our lives. For them, this was it. Religion and magic were what explained disease and weather and other wonders of life. Uh, Things like fertility and mortality and germination and fermentation and putrefaction. Religion and, and magic explained what we now think of as natural phenomena. Now, most people at that time would not have understood the complicated theories that tried to explain all of this, or at least they wouldn't have understood it very well, just like most of us don't actually understand science very well. This gets us to witchcraft. And witchcraft for us is is a good way to understand how people thought in the 16th and 17th centuries, how they understood their world. Uh, Remember, science uh, is functioning basically as our religion, uh, but science is something relatively new. People in the 16th, 17th, well into the 18th century had no such option. Uh, We know why people get sick, why they sometimes die suddenly. People in the 16th century knew why these things happened too. 
Their explanations, though, are what we would now call religion or magic. And this is really the point uh, of this talk about science is in the 16th century, experts published scientific textbooks, scientific in quotes, textbooks on witchcraft. Uh, They explained, for example, how to detect witchcraft, how to root out witches, uh, how to put them on trial, uh, and then, of course, how to deal with them afterwards. Uh, There, that's the title page uh, of the Malleus Maleficarum. Uh, This was, uh, and still is, uh, known as the best known and most widely distributed of these handbooks on witch hunting. Uh, The title in Latin literally means Uh, the hammer of sorcery or the hammer of sorcerers. More commonly, we translate this as the hammer of witches. This first appeared in the late 15th century, shortly after the printing press. It then went through dozens of editions and translations over the next couple of centuries. This was a very kind of common thing to the point that this is what we would now call a standard text on the subject. Now, virtually nobody doubted that this was legitimate, that witchcraft worked. On the contrary, everybody at the time knew that the devil was real and that magic worked. These are the kind of fundamental ideas they were working with, given those ideas that the devil is real and that magic works. uh, Witchcraft comes about almost kind of automatically. Now, ironically, uh, for a lot of us maybe, The witch craze happened in Europe after the Renaissance in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is important because it makes us realize that the Renaissance society never actually seriously doubted witchcraft. The witch craze had its high point in the 16th and 17th centuries, in the 1500s and the 1600s. This was when the Protestant Reformation was sweeping Europe. And as modern as those people were in some ways, In other ways, like regarding witchcraft, Martin Luther and other reformers went right along with this. The Protestants ultimately turned out to be just as anti-witch as Catholics, if not more so. So what did the best researchers of the day know about witchcraft? We're at the point, finally now, where we're going to talk about sex. You'll edit out that wolf howl, right? Um, So, uh, witchcraft was largely about sex and gender. I I think most of us kind of knew this before we came here this evening. Uh, Even when witchcraft wasn't about genitalia or intercourse, it was about things like fertility and reproduction and lactation, uh, people's bodies in a sexualized way. Of course, this reflects the fears and obsessions and the compulsions of people in the 16th century. Uh, So really, a good way to read the Hammer of Witches, uh, the Malleus Maleficarum, is as a reflection of their culture. Uh, So for example, uh, there's one chapter titled, quote, Concerning Women Who Copulate with Devils, and Why It Is That Women Are Chiefly Addicted to Evil Superstitions, unquote, as compared to men. Uh, It provides uh, several reasons. Uh, So for example, women are more likely to be witches, it says, because they talked too much. <laughs> Let's be clear, too. I, this is from the source. This is not me. Uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think this. Uh, so, 
And the reason that talking too much made women more likely to be witches than men was that women too readily shared witchcraft secrets with other women. So another reason is that women were thought to be more wrathful, more vengeful than men, and they were eager to use witchcraft against their enemies. Uh, Finally, women were understood to be more gullible than men and would more readily enter into a kind of a deal with Satan, thinking they would actually get a, get a good deal out of this. Now, this might seem misogynistic to you. Uh, hopefully, this seems misogynistic to you. Uh, you're certainly right. And at this point, we can, uh, we'll skip ahead to an image. Uh, the people tuning in on the radio at some point won't be able to see this, but we're looking at an ink drawing of witches. Uh, by Albrecht Dürer. Uh, Dürer was probably the most important German Renaissance artist in, uh, at the time. What we're looking at is, uh, is four women uh, wearing really only headscarves or headgear. Uh, some of them have their backs to us, uh, so don't get excited. Oh, they're holding a piece of fabric, so there's no full frontal nudity. Uh, but I think most of us would agree that this is actually rather titillating. Uh, I think I'm using that word per- correctly. In the background, through a doorway, uh, we can actually see a demon or Satan. Uh, this is in the lower left of the picture. If you're looking, it looks like a monkey or a dog poking its head in through the door. If you look more closely, it's, it's a kind of demonic thing holding something in its hand. So clearly, uh, there's something sexual about this, right? Uh, note that there's also something conspiratorial about them. Uh, and this confirmed generally what people knew, uh, which is that women are sneaky and tricky and uh, kind of scary. Uh, so we'll look at another picture uh, in just a moment. This, uh, this is another drawing by Dürer from about the same period. This is, uh, again, kind of plays off with what we would see in the Malleus Maleficarum, the idea that witches under a full moon would either change into animals or would ride animals to go meet other witches or to go meet Satan at some kind of witch's Sabbath. Uh, Now, this obviously is a different witch uh, than the ones that we just saw. I'll describe this for the radio audience again. This witch is also naked, uh, but she's riding a goat backwards, surrounded by four cherubs. She's much older than the four witches that we saw before, uh, judging from her face and her body. Uh, And this is clearly an alternate type of witch. Uh, Rather than being young and kind of sensuous, uh, she's old and I think I can say haggard. Um, Nonetheless, you can see that haggard, in portraying this old woman naked, has really kind of sexualized her, even if it's in the sense of uh, of the grotesque. Uh, not that it's sensuous and attractive, uh, but it's sexual in a kind of scary, disturbing, off-putting way. So I promise we will come back to sex and gender, uh, but for now, I, I want to go back to the science of this. And the point is, there was a whole body of literature on witchcraft and demonology. Uh, and this is an entire field of study in the 16th century, demonology. It explained the potions and the spells that witches used. It explained how witches conjured up demons. It explained why and how witches stole and killed and ate other people's children. It explained how witches uh, gathered at Sabbaths to dance naked and pay homage uh, to Satan. So we'll look at illustrations of these too. 
for, for the radio audience, again, I'll, I'll describe this. Uh, this is a woodcut from the early 17th century uh, from another handbook on witch hunting. Uh, in the foreground, there's a man and a woman, and they're cooking a child over a fire. Uh, the man actually seems to be using a spoon uh, to baste the child. Uh, those of you who've made a Thanksgiving turkey uh, can kind of envision this. Um, in the background, there's another man and a woman who are putting an infant into a cauldron uh, that has a fire under it. Uh, you, you get the idea. Uh, this plays very much upon what people knew uh, at the time. Uh, this is where missing children went. Uh, take note, all of you kids in the audience. So... We'll go to another image. This is another woodcut from the same 17th century handbook. Um, I'll describe this again, although most of you can see this pretty clearly. Uh, there are half a dozen men and women here uh, dressed relatively nicely. Uh, one of the men is kneeling before Satan, who is pouring water from a bowl over him. Now, we know it's Satan uh, because he has the feet of a bird, um, he has bat wings, he has a goat's head, and he has a long, skinny tail. So uh, this, again, confirmed what people knew about what witches did at their Sabbaths, uh, how they got along with Satan, uh, how they consummated their relationship, or, uh, as it says here, uh, were rebaptized by him. Look at another one of these. This is another woodcut from the same series, Again, there's a half a dozen women uh, and men here, not just women, but women and men. Uh, Satan is also here in the foreground. And facing Satan, uh, one of the men is trampling a large cross, which has been laid on the ground. Now, all of these, uh, except for the uh, eating the children, uh, all of these are pretty G-rated theories of how one would form a pact with Satan. Uh, you can probably recognize these as variations on Christian ceremonies and rituals, uh, baptism and venerating the cross. Uh, these are the kind of polar opposites, uh, being rebaptized by Satan or trampling on the cross instead of venerating it. Uh, we can imagine, and I'll come back to this point, uh, that this reflects a lot of anxiety about religious division and diversity. Now, to go back to sex... There were other ways to consummate a relationship with Satan. It was most common for women to have sexual intercourse with Satan. And in fact, there's an elaborate demonological theory concocted to explain this. We know that it's concocted. People at the time were utterly convinced uh, that this was how it was. So, for example, they knew that Satan came from hell, from underground, they knew that he stank like the noxious gases that they sometimes smelled in caves and mines and things like this, uh, what we would think of as sulfur, natural gas for all of us in 21st century America. Uh, he could appear and disappear as the noxious gases condensed. This was how people explained Satan appearing out of nowhere, appearing in closed rooms, things like this. And these underground gases out of which Satan would appear were, of course, cold and therefore, Satan would be cold to the touch. And quite specifically, uh, cover your kids' ears at this point, Satan's penis was said to be icy cold to the touch. And in fact, this comes up so consistently in interrogation records uh, that this became very much uh, not just kind of hypothesis or wild uh, guess, uh, but very much the theory of the day is that if you had intercourse with Satan, the one really notable aspect of it would be his cold penis. I don't make this stuff up. So. 
Now, other forms of consummation or worship were also, I think, what we would call sexual, to the extent that if you did something like this nowadays, uh, you would wind up a sex offender, uh, but more openly scatological. This is another... This is another woodcut from the same series that we've been looking at. And again, I I don't make this up. Um, For the radio audience, let let me describe this. We're looking again in the same series of woodcuts. It's a small crowd of people. I think I counted eight heads uh, when when I looked at this earlier. Uh, They're dressed nicely, holding torches. Of course, it's dark. Um, In the foreground, a woman is kneeling. Now, Satan has his back to her, and he's lifting his tail. And the kneeling woman is putting her face, uh, I guess you could say, into Satan's backside. <laughs> now, in some variations of this theory, this how witches would consummate their relationship with Satan, uh, kissing him on the backside was enough. Um, in other variations, uh, this is kind of playing on the theme of noxious gases, <laughs> Witches would inhale the noxious fumes. Uh, people. Now, if witches had kept to themselves, this probably would not have been so bad. Uh, however, witches were understood also to do all kinds of harm. In fact, uh, literally, we could translate maleficarum from the hammer of witches uh, to something like maliciousness. Uh, So there are chapters on crimes uh, typically done by witches uh, to the rest of society. Uh, Now, much of the harm that witches did was was not really sexual, Uh, despite what some people will tell you. Not everything has to be gender all the time. Uh, So, for example, there's a whole chapter on, uh, quote, of the method by which they, witches, can inflict every sort of infirmity, generally ills of the graver kind. Another chapter is uh, how they raise and stir up hailstorms and tempests and cause lightning to blast both men and beasts. Uh, Another chapter is how witches injure cattle in various ways. That that chapter is not about sex. Um, Now, there were remedies for these two uh, in these handbooks. Uh, Another chapter is remedies prescribed against hailstorms and for animals that are bewitched. Now, however, many of which is crimes, and really the worst ones, are about sex. So, for example, right up front, one of the leading chapters is how which midwives commit the most horrid crimes when they either kill children or offer them to devils in the most accursed wise. And one of my favorite chapters, quote, how, as it were, they, which is, Deprive man of his virile member. (laughs) I'm guessing most of you know what his virile member is. I'm actually going to read you a bit of this so that you get a sense of how the Malleus Maleficarum is written. This is one of the sources that my students and I read up at HSU, for those of you who are wondering what I do up there. (laughs) I'll read this. Quote, And what then is to be thought of those witches who in this way sometimes collect male organs in great numbers? As many as 20 or 30 members together, and they put them in a bird's nest, or they shut them up in a box, where they move themselves like living members and eat oats and corn. As has been seen by many and is a matter of common report. (laughs) 
For a certain man tells that when he lost his member, he approached a known witch to ask her to restore it to him. She told the afflicted man to climb a certain tree and that he might take which he liked out of a nest in which there were several members. (laughs) Again, I I don't make this up. (laughs) And when he tried to take a big one, the witch said, you must not take that one because it belonged to a parish priest. Okay, so having now looked at the reality of witchcraft in the 16th and 17th century, we could ask ourselves, or historians ask ourselves, what the hell was witchcraft? What were these people thinking? How did this happen? Uh, Never mind what people believed then. What do we know now about what these people were doing? How can we understand this social cultural phenomena? Uh, I'll pick one more. In the course of the 16th, 17th, 18th century, uh, a rough guess, and and historians readily admit that we really only have rough guesses, but a rough guess is that something like 100,000 people were accused of witchcraft, and probably half of those were found guilty and executed. Uh, The rest, the other half, were probably uh, either found innocent in rare cases or uh, made some kind of promise to rehabilitate themselves and and were reintegrated somehow into society. Uh, Sometimes this came in surges, uh, mass uh, persecutions, uh, where they thought they had uncovered whole groups of witches, whole covens of witches. Uh, But really, there, there are several different types of witchcraft accusations. Uh, This will sound almost kind of commonsensical to anybody who's taken uh, a basic sociology class. Uh, When things went wrong, communities blamed individuals. Uh, So when a hailstorm, for example, destroyed crops and buildings, as we've already heard, uh, or when an epidemic struck, or when a child went missing, or even if somebody just got a headache, or if somebody were dumped by her boyfriend... It was common to blame people who seemed to have the power to do these things or make these things happen. Somebody who could make good things happen or fix problems could almost certainly make bad things happen or could cause problems. The same IT guy who can fix your computer uh, can make sure that you never see any of your email ever again, right? (laughs) Another type of persecution is somebody acting erratically or inappropriately. Now, crazy people in our world are mentally ill and they need medicine and therapy. Uh, Crazy people in the 16th century were possessed by the devil, or at least bewitched. Uh, They had a demon or even the devil himself in themselves. Uh, Quite often this was wrapped up in sex as well. Uh, People who behaved lewdly or inappropriately, uh, these were signs of demonic possession. Uh, nowadays, we chalk this kind of behavior up to brain chemistry, uh, not necessarily the sexual aspects of this, but uh, PTSD, ADHD, some kind of psychosis. Uh, these people need to be treated. They need medication or, or therapy. In the 16th or 17th century, these people needed an exorcism, um, and it t- tended to actually work. Other people were entirely innocent, it seems, at least from our perspective. And they tended to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, a typical scenario is that a man saw a sexually attractive young woman, perhaps like one of Durer's first four witches, and became sexually aroused. 
Uh, we still use terms like enchanted or bewitched uh, or having someone cast a spell on someone uh, to describe falling in love or at least feeling a lot of lust. If then later things didn't work out with the man's wife sexually, it would be because he's bewitched. Uh, you could say uh, the witch had stolen his virile member, for example. Uh, and nowadays we have uh, medication and treatment for these things, which are advertised <laughs> constantly during my favorite programs. So, <laughs> However, we should be clear that witchcraft generally was not men accusing women. Most witchcraft accusations were made by women against other women. Witchcraft typically was a woman-on-woman crime. Now, this doesn't mean it wasn't misogynistic. I think most of us understand that women could be misogynistic too. And there's even one brand of feminism that sees witchcraft persecutions as empowering women, the accusers, not the, not the accusees. Now, the women who accuse others of witchcraft were actually taken seriously. They could cause real problems for, uh, we would say, their victims, the people that they accused. Uh, they could have a chance to be heard, even a chance to have the wrongs that they thought that they had suffered uh, addressed and somehow put to right. And in fact, probably the most common case of witchcraft that comes up again and again, uh, the stereotypical uh, witch is a poor old crone who is assumed to have been jealous of a young mother and has therefore done some harm to her. So uh, this leads us to another type of witchcraft persecution, medical practitioners. Uh, Elderly women uh, typically provided herbal remedies, lifted spells or cast spells, served as midwives or nurses, uh, nurses in the sense of taking care of children, not working in a hospital, And their work was understood to be magic as much as medicine. Uh, They undoubtedly had power in this way. They could do stuff and people knew it. And if something went wrong, if somebody snubbed them, everyone knew that if they knew how to cure people or make them better, then they also knew how to make them sick. A midwife who knew how to cure a woman, uh, get a woman through a difficult pregnancy, would also know how to make her miscarry. A nurse would know how to take care of a sickly infant, but she would also know how to make a healthy infant become sick. Now, it's also pretty clear, although this is all difficult looking at interrogation records, it's pretty clear that at least in some cases, people really did intend to do harm to their victims. Uh, Some of these witches, you could say, were actually guilty of trying to hurt people. In other cases, this was pretty clearly what we would now simply call medical malpractice. Uh, In other cases, this was practitioners uh, who simply became scapegoats for things out of anyone else's control, anyone's control. Now, we should remember, too, that that these women, and an easy way to think of this is, uh, this would be Durer's second witch. Uh, These women tended to be more vulnerable because of their informal qualifications and their marginal status in society. These women were not like university-educated physicians who tended to be pillars of society, well-connected, wealthy, and relatively immune to what we would call malpractice suits. To some extent, these witches were competition. Their work then was labeled as demonism. And perhaps worse, they simply did not have the social or the financial capital to fend off their critics. To ask another question, Why did the witch craze happen when it did? 
Uh, from the historian's perspective, we want to look at the context of the witch craze. Uh, why did European witch hunts happen in the 16th and 17th century? And this wasn't really as widespread before the 16th century, and witch hunts stopped happening in most places by the end of the 17th century. What else was going on in Europe at this time? Those of you who know history know that the 16th and 17th centuries were the time of the Reformation and the wars of religion. Everybody was amped up about religion at this point in history. Catholics and Protestants constantly accused each other of heresy, and they accused each other of being the Antichrist, of being in league with Satan. Uh, Persecutions for heresy were common on both sides. Uh, Catholics persecuted Protestants. Protestants persecuted Catholics. Uh, Both of them persecuted Jews and accused them of many of the same kind of crimes. Uh, The idea that a cadre of heretics in the community were meeting secretly was very, very real, and we could actually say true. Uh, because uh, not only did people suspect that there were secret societies performing heterodox rituals and ceremonies, heresy like this really did exist. Religious minorities did conceal their beliefs, they did meet secretly, and they did suborn the dominant religion. Uh, From there, it wasn't hard for people to suspect others of meeting secretly, of performing secret forbidden rites. They also, of course, suspected them of plotting to do harm against the rest of society. You can get the idea. This looks a lot like witchcraft. Um, Like witches, heretics usually existed in groups. If you found one, kind of like cockroaches, uh, you could guess there were going to be a lot more somewhere. Uh, You could then interrogate one to uncover the others. Uh, Using inquisitorial methods made this easier uh, because the burden of proof was a lot less in regular criminal cases. Uh, Witch hunters didn't need to even present a wronged party to prosecute somebody for witchcraft. Uh, The legal barriers to using torture were lower in these cases as well, uh, which helps to explain, I think, a lot of the kind of fantastic theories that keep coming up uh, as basically witnesses or suspects uh, were led through interviews. Witches then denounced other witches. Chain reactions grew as people hung others out to dry. Nobody wanted to be burned for protecting somebody else. Of course, the prosecutors played right into this because they usually assumed that they were looking at one part of a gigantic conspiracy. Now, religious conflicts segued into witchcraft prosecutions in other ways. Every religion became more strict about doctrine and practice during this period. We call this period the age of confessionalization. Uh, Confessionalization is too big a word, but it basically means the hardening of religious boundaries. And this means that heterodox practices, not practicing the religion properly, doing things that would have been shrugged off before, rather quickly became a serious infraction. So things like remnants of paganism, or what we would call simple superstition, suddenly sounded and looked a lot like witchcraft to some of these people. Uh, Ancient fertility rites, uh, local customs, uh, these things wound up being condemned by inquisitors as witchcraft. Finally, one more thing we could point to as a kind of origin for the witch craze in Europe, and that's the economy. The economy in the 16th and 17th century was not good making it worse, many charitable institutions had been dismantled as part of the Reformation. 
Reformers disbanded and confiscated convents and monasteries and abbeys. These institutions had served charitable functions like poor relief. And this meant that rather suddenly in the 16th century, there were a lot of migrant poor moving around. Uh, In bad economic times, people look for scapegoats. Uh, And in fact, one of the common themes of witchcraft accusations, uh, we could call the slighted beggar. Uh, Someone comes to the door asking for charity. Typical would be a meal and a place to sleep for the night. If that person is sent away empty-handed, this rebuffed beggar might curse the people who had refused to give him or her charity. And then something bad might happen. The cow's milk might turn sour. The barn might get hit by lightning. Somebody might get a headache or diarrhea. Somebody could fall off a ladder. And then, of course, everybody would know exactly what had happened. This was witchcraft. If someone curses you and then something bad happens, uh, obviously that's a cause and effect relationship. A modern comparison that most of us can probably relate to, if you park on the plaza and as you're climbing out of your car, someone asks you for money and you don't give him money and he curses you and then when you come back to your car, it's been keyed, then you would know exactly what has happened. So this is, uh, this is the pattern that we're talking about. Now, to wrap up, uh, why did witch hunting stop? Well, first, obviously, medicine and science started to get better, at least, during the scientific revolution. Uh, People sought solutions in the natural sciences, what we would now call uh, the sciences, rather than looking for supernatural explanations. Uh, They began to understand the natural world as something different than the supernatural, They began to demand better proof and tests of hypotheses and theories. Uh, It wasn't enough to have the same story come up in witchcraft trials again and again and again. Uh, They wanted repeatable, observable phenomena. They also began to understand medicines, at least to some extent, and rather significantly, they invented insanity as a way to explain aberrant behavior. Uh, There's other aspects of this. Uh, In the 17th century, social welfare states were basically invented, as we understand them, and they took over care of the poor. Uh, Individual people were relieved from caring for the poor on a one-to-one basis. And to put it bluntly, there wasn't any need to have a guilty conscience anymore. There weren't as many poor people wandering about because people had invented the institutions to lock them up. Uh, This was... Uh, The poorhouse, the orphanage, the hospital, the prison, the asylum, uh, this got these people off the roads, uh, out of the way, Uh, and these are largely people who might otherwise have been accused of witchcraft. Finally, uh, both Catholics and Protestants finally uh, agreed that witchcraft wasn't real anymore. They decided that the devil was not here after all. Uh, Witchcraft didn't work. It was simple superstition. It was bogus. Uh, Like paganism, it was wrong, it was heterodox, but it was basically pointless, and it was ultimately harmless. And this is basically the end of witchcraft. So many, many thanks for your attention, and I'm looking forward very much to your questions and and your comments. And and thank you, Mike, too. A big humble state round of applause. Ben Marshall, it is your turn now. We're going to do the Q&A, and Nancy is going to walk around with this microphone as soon as I give it to her. 
Um, is there any historical proof that either negates or supports the idea that the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church purposely use the idea of witches and witch hunts as a like propaganda method to take away the power of strong, independent women who were leaders in their community? I mean, this is one of these ideas that, I mean, that comes up pretty frequently because it, it's a kind of a slam dunk for women's history and, and gender history is to say, look, you know, here you've got a bunch of guys, like the guys who wrote the Malleus Maleficarum, um, saying that, look, here's a whole list of things that are wrong with women, and these are the really horrendous things that women do, uh, which is witchcraft. And this basically gives us an excuse uh, to pick out the women that we don't like and burn them alive. Um, and, and I mean, there's certainly a lot of truth into that. Now, whether or not this is a kind of consciously formulated conspiracy, I, I don't think anybody has been able to actually show that. Uh, and on the contrary, I mean, the people who really study witchcraft in depth are pretty clear that, as horrifying as it sounds to us, these people actually really believed what they were saying. And that the guys who wrote the Malleus Maleficarum weren't just scapegoating women in the sense that they were looking for somebody to take a fall or that stuff had gone wrong and, and they wanted to you know, purposefully pick out somebody to kind of rally society around and have a good witch-burning party. Uh, they really actually believed that these witches were doing this stuff. If, if, I hope that answers your question. My question is um, about men in witchcraft and... So we're, we focused a lot on women and women's sexuality and witchcraft, and I want to know where men and male witches or perhaps warlocks fit into this whole narrative. What did they do? Was it different, perhaps, if they did things, or yeah. was it the same? Uh, yeah, good, good question. I mean, uh, it's probably surprising to us that, uh, depending on who you ask, men get accused of witchcraft fairly frequently. Uh, something on the order of 20, 30, 40, in some cases, well over half of accused witches are, are men. Um, I mean, warlock could be kind of one way to think of this. Another way would be simply a sorcerer. Um, or even a basic conjuring that, that people would do. And a lot of this would get wrapped up... I mean, the, the cliche is that uh, women's crimes tend to be sexual. Men's crimes tend to be property-based during this period. And in fact, the whole kind of sense of honor among women is largely wrapped up in their sexuality, their bodies, uh, their chastity, their motherhood, uh, things like this, uh, whereas the honor of men is wrapped up in uh, their profession, their possessions, their property, uh, whatever guild qualifications or, or other things they've got going on. Um, th so in this way, what you see men accused of doing is, uh, for example, conjuring up demons to go treasure hunting, uh, which, again, will sound kind of nutty to us, but, but this is one of these things that, that, that they do. Uh, the idea that they know there's buried treasure out there somewhere, and they're actually going to try to conjure up a demon to help them, help them find it. Uh, in other cases, they, they try to get demons to help them do harm to people uh, in much the same way that, that witches do. Um, the, the kind of, uh, and honestly, I'm not sure if this is a, a, a just critique or not. Uh, one version of this is that many of the men who wind up accused of witchcraft are accused of aiding and abetting their wives. Uh, because the women wind up accused of witchcraft, and then the husbands wind up being dragged into this. Um, not that they're innocent either, or any less innocent than their wives, but um, the, you know, the idea is that if your wife is casting spells on people, you're probably aware of this and know it's happening. So, so, so it's, it's more of that kind of thing. Hi, thank you. Um, 
Over here. Oh, there you are. So yes, here I am. Um, thank you very much for this fascinating lecture. My question is, as a historian, how do you see the reality of this time period that we're discussing uh, reflected in the culture of today? I knew somebody was going to ask. Then no, it's, it's a great, it's a great, great question, and um, I try to uh, to be what we historians call a historicist, and, and the, especially working on the the early modern period, which is kind of far away and. And the idea of historicism is that really we should understand the 16th century just to understand the 16th century. Um, And that if you go and try to understand the 16th century because you think it's going to tell you something about the 21st century, you're probably taking so much baggage with you that you're going to wind up with garbage in, garbage out. And whatever agenda you showed up with uh, or acts you showed up with to grind, um, that's, that's going to be problematic. One of the things that history does, I think, which is practical or applicable nowadays is it teaches us that everything has a history, right? I mean, and this is a cliche. And in fact, I think the history department puts it on its posters when we try to recruit students and things like this. But, uh, you know, we, we should look at something like witchcraft and realize that there was a time before the witch craze. There was a time of the witch craze and there was a time after the witch craze, these things came and went, and there wasn't anything really natural or universal or, or true about witchcraft. And it should also teach us that these people were, like I said a moment ago, and I think said during my talk, these people were utterly convinced that they knew what they were doing. Um, and so if there's a lesson here, it's that uh, when we think of what it is that we're utterly convinced of, especially when it comes to things that other people are telling us, people in whom we believe or have faith, uh, maybe we should be a little more critical about that. Uh, maybe we should um, ask more questions and, and be a little more sure about whether eggs really are poison uh, or maybe whether or not uh, butter is good for you or bad for you or, or pick any number of uh, scientific uh, pronouncements that have been debunked uh, in my lifetime. So. so no one actually was a witch and everyone was executed for no reason? Well, uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I, 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 on the contrary, I, I, I think it's pretty clear that there actually were people who thought that they could conjure demons and cast spells. Um, and again, it, it's hard to kind of keep, it's hard to know. And, and this is, I mean, this is another thing that history tells us that we don't really know much of anything. But um, if you look at interrogation records and things like this, and you really look at them closely, and especially the interrogations that were done fairly well, uh, where they weren't asking leading questions and torturing people in advance, um, what you see is that there actually were people who really were convinced that they could cast spells on their neighbors, uh, that they could do harm to their neighbors. Um, and I, I guess one way to think of this would be that, you know, some of us, I'm sure, sometimes wish ill upon people around us. You can imagine, you know, if you really kind of thought, gosh, I hope, uh, I hope my neighbor gets hit by a bus, and then he did get hit by a bus, uh, you might actually think you had something to do with it. So in that way, yes, um, there were people who, uh, who thought that they were casting spells, doing things like this. Uh, and probably in some cases, there were people who came up with what they thought they were using magic potions uh, to harm people, and it was really poison. Um, they knew that giving a potion to somebody would make them behave erratically or kill them or make them sick, 
Um, and they were right. Uh, they thought it was some kind of magic they were working. Uh, we would say it's basic chemistry. So, Yes, I'm wondering, um, when it comes to the disposal of witches, it seemed as though Europe, they burned them more. In America, my, one of my ancestors was actually hung for being a witch in Salem. Was it no firewood in America, or was there magical thinking behind it? Yeah, yeah usually witches are burned, um, simply because it solves the problem of what to do with the body, because you can't bury witches in hallowed ground, uh, especially unrepentant or... Uh, relapsed witches. This is why heretics were also typically burned. If you burn people, it, it solves the body problem. Uh, the other aspect of this is people actually thought that if you burned people alive, it would purify them. Uh, the heat, the flame, the fire uh, would purify them, and this would actually help them at some point to find redemption and, and perhaps uh, in a very twisted way save their soul. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of saving that most of us, I think, would not want. Um, and what you see, too, is a lot of times people would, would be executed in serial ways, right? So that they would uh, hang people first as a kind of act of mercy, especially if people had repented and uh, confessed and, and kind of rehabilitated themselves beforehand. Uh, this was the reward for confessing was they would hang you first uh, and then they would dismember you and then they would burn your body parts, if that makes sense. Um, which you can imagine, hanging first would be much more pleasant than being dismembered uh, or burned uh, first. So, but yeah, that's um, these things vary in different ways. Uh, they came up with other crimes for different things. Uh, you know, the typical crime, uh, the typical hanging, hanging is typically for theft. Uh, having your head cut off is the punishment, usually for rebellion or murder. Uh, for things like infanticide, it was common to tie up women in sacks and throw them into a body of water and then let them drown. Um, in really obscene cases, they would tie up a woman in a sack with an animal, uh, either a dog or a cat, or if they could get it, a monkey, uh, and then let them both drown together uh, as a sign of, of kind of um, you know, humiliating the woman and, and, and literally punishing the body um, beyond causing pain and causing death. So... That's probably too much detail before dinner. <laughs> I think we got to call it right there. That was phenomenal. Great questions, everybody. One last time for Ben Marshke on my favorite lecture. Good night. Get home safe. And that is our show. My Favorite Lecture is a collaboration between Humboldt State, KHSU, and Arcata Main Street. Produced by Katie Whiteside, Ed Subkiss, Frank Whitlatch, Nancy Stevenson, and myself. Our live sound engineer is Chris Pereira, and Mark Jeffers is our recording engineer. Special thanks to the Plaza Grill, Vicki Joyce, Kristen Gould, Lost Coast Light and Sound, Malcolm DeSoto, and of course, Ben Marshke. And if you want to learn more about witches and the things he talked about, you can check the show notes at khsu.org. They are probably not safe for work, and they're pretty weird. Just going to put that out there. You can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. Just search for My Favorite Lecture. Leave us a review if you like what you heard. My name is Mike Dronkers, and we will see you next time on My Favorite Lecture.